welcome to Silux, the podcast where we talk about scientific developments and technological changes in Luxembourg. And in today's episode, we talk to Ben Toy, the paleontologist from the Museum of Natural History in Luxembourg. And he told us a lot about uh, different excavations, working as a paleontologist in Luxembourg, his involvement in the museum exhibitions, brittle stars, uh, which are quite fascinating for him especially. And you will see, he actually did get me interested after the discussion. And also other things like naming new species. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Silux. Our guest today is Ben Toy, the paleontologist at Luxembourg National Museum of Natural History. Thank you for coming today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, I have to start with something strange or surprising. So my question is, are you mourning right now? Are you sad? Uh, why should I be? Because the Lost Ocean exhibition is just finished. And I don't oh, know, yes, you know yes. what is more important for you, the excavations or the exhibitions, but that was quite a lot of work for you, wasn't it, at the museum? Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, I'm having mixed feelings right now. It was a very intense time. I think it, 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 it had a, a running time of eight months and uh, every single month was very intense and very workload and uh, full of uh, activities and presentations and guided tours and excavations lately. So I'm, I'm going to miss that. But on the other hand, I have to say, That was enough now. I, I'll, I'll need some more time for actual research, which nevertheless continued during the exhibition during the exhibition time. But still, it feels a little more quiet if you don't have a big exhibition in your back, needing to needing attention, needing activities. Uh, so yes, I'm I'm mourning, but I'm also relieved to some extent. So now you have to dismantle, and then you can actually focus on something else, I guess, as you said. All right, but before we discuss the exhibition itself, because I also wanted to focus a little bit on that, because I have to say that I loved it. Myself was there twice, so oh, it was really, really worth it. I just wanted to set the scene as usual. And as I said, you're the paleontologist at the museum Can you explain to our listeners what is paleontology? I know you get that question so often, but I still have to ask. Oh, it's it's quite uh, quite correct to ask because uh, there is always a bit of confusion between paleontology and archaeology. The definition of paleontology is the science of the past life, the science of past living beings. And uh, that's uh, quite an accurate summary of what we're doing. Uh, we're looking into uh, how life was millions of years ago. So by definition, we are, we are also dealing with uh, dinosaurs, or at least the non-avian dinosaurs. But when it comes to human activities, human culture, human buildings, these are the topics of the objects of study of the archaeologists. And people tend to confuse the two because uh, we are both digging the soil but with different techniques and different aims. So uh, yes, we were digging, and yes, we were also collaborating with archaeologists, but when they stopped, that was when we started, namely with the, with the ground rock. That's where our, our stuff is hiding in. So it's all, it's all about digging, but the aims are different. You just don't care that much about people. I wouldn't say so, because, well, what we're digging is the archive of life, So we, we are uh, investigating it because we care about uh, nowadays, 
I mean, this is a very there is a very pathetic phrase that says that the past is the key to the to the present, but it still holds true. I mean, if we want to understand what is going on around us, if you want to understand uh, climate change, for example, we need to look into the past because it will tell us. Uh, It will it will teach us uh, a lot about what is going on today and what could be going on in, in the future. So caring about people, about society is definitely part of the game. But uh, when we are digging, of course, yes, we are not expecting human remains. There will be a lot of assumptions in our discussion because, you know, your job definitely has this kind of a special legendary mode, let's say, what people know about it. And of course, when you talk about paleontology, the first thing that comes, dinosaurs. The second thing, digging, as you mentioned, right? And then there are a few other things that I would like to kind of debunk, let's say, discuss these myths and also talk about other things that actually you could be focusing on because you don't focus on dinosaurs yourself, do you? No, I'm not. Uh, I, I've been part of a dinosaur uh, digging team Um couple of years ago. Uh, that was quite an experience, I have to say. But scientifically, uh, when, when we speak about my, my own personal expertise, it's not with dinosaurs. It's with a completely different group. And that is? That is the brittle stars, which are uh, one of the five uh, living groups of echinoderm. They are the cousins of the starfish and of the, of the sea urchins. They have an, uh, an, a very rich fossil record. And especially they, they, they have a, a very poorly studied fossil record. So they are a bit like a playground that nobody has used before. So and that, that's making them interesting for me as a model organism to study in order to understand the big picture. So um, dinosaurs are still very useful. And I, I still deal with dinosaurs, especially when it comes to science outreach, because they are the perfect ambassador. They are the charismatic group that you can use to get the people's attention. But once they are listening, I tend to go to my own expertise because that's where I really can tell the stories, the, the innovative stories that I, 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 I'm part of uh, as, as a researcher. But you're not going to you're not going to make the headlines with a brittle star. Let's be honest; it's not not a group that uh, people are, are very familiar with. It's not not even remotely as spectacular as a T Rex. But for scientific research, I would say they are at least as exciting as a dinosaur. Okay, so let's prove how exciting they are. I know you prepared a pub quiz question about them, so could you ask it right now? Yes, yes, yes. Cool idea, by the way. I, I, li I like this concept. And my, my pub quiz question is, brittle stars have three superpowers. Can you imagine which ones they are? Okay, great question. And as usual, please uh, remember that the answer to this question will be only at the end of the podcast. So it's really worth listening. Of course, there are other reasons to listen as well, but also the answer to the question will be there. So now coming back to the basics. So we discussed a little bit virtual stars. We are going to de definitely dig deeper into it, but I wanted to come back to Uh, paleontology as such, and, and the fact of digging. Because as I said, we have this assumption that, okay, if we already understand what is archaeology and paleontology, then the other thing is, okay, uh, dinosaurs, and the second or third thing is digging. But it's not necessarily only that, right? I mean, there are a lot of modern methods that you're using. It's not that you spend all your time with, a, you know, a small brush. How does it look? Explain to me, because that's very interesting. 
Well, th this is this is this is the the Jurassic Park uh, moment, indeed, because uh, I don't know if you if you remember one of the first scenes of the film is when the the paleontologists, which by the way were were my 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 idols back then as a child, uh, they are lying on the floor and brushing a skeleton of a Velociraptor. I can tell you, I, I use the brush, but not in the fields. It's very 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 exceptional that we actually dig with a brush. We dig with an excavator. We dig with with uh, with the heavy materials, and if it comes to the if it comes to the detail, we don't do that at at the, at the quarry. We don't do that in the field because the chance is very high that uh, it's going to end up in a damaged fossil. So, field work is heavy physical work, and then the fine work is done in the lab. But when I'm using the brush, it's when I'm picking microfossils. I'm picking them with the finest brush that you can buy in in your art shop. And why a brush? Well, for the simple reason that uh, the fossils, the micro fossils, the, the tiny millimeter-sized fossils I'm, I'm trying to extract from my sample, they tend to be very small and delicate. And if I, if I can use a very small brush, then I can uh, manipulate it and extract it without uh, risking uh, any damage. So yes, I'm using the brush, but not in the way people imagine. Okay, so but you are not a excavator operator either, right? You have no. other people doing that for you, or how does it work? Unfortunately, I'm not. But uh, during the last ex uh, excavation, for example, we were uh, in the extremely lucky position to have an, a very skilled and a very, uh, um, how to say, motorically gentle but still an efficient excavator conductor. He, he was extremely efficient in, in the way that he, it took him half a day to learn the geology of the site without being an academic at all. And uh, he, he was able to, to operate the machine in a more gentle way than, than some people use their hands. So um, I'm, not, I'm not driving those machines myself, but uh, I have a very high appreciation if people can, can do that in the context of, of an excavation. And then, for example, you mentioned that in the recent one. So the recent one was the one in Basharash, right? Correct, yes. Okay. So just to understand, was it... Uh, what I read about you, because I have to say, okay, let's start with that. I have to say that you are very present in social media and there is a lot to find. I would say almost famous, or maybe it's just because I'm um, checking the museum site like crazy and, and on the Twitter account and everything. So I'm a big fan. So I, I see you very often and I see you there, you know, showing all the fossils and everything you've found. And what I understood from what you were explaining as well is that you either well, you can go look for them yourself, but most of the times what happens is that there is, I don't know, a new building constructed, right? Or there are some amateur uh, fossil searchers who find something and then you get called and you go there to examine it yourself. Am I right? Did I get it correctly? Yes, that's a, that's a very accurate uh, summary of, of uh, how, it, how it takes place for the simple reason that I cannot be physically in more than one place. So uh, I have a, a, lot, a lot of admiration for Dr. Manhattan, but... Uh, I am most of the time I, I am at the museum at, at my office. So if there is an interesting place gaining momentum in the field, uh, meaning that there is a construction site or there is uh, a landslide sometimes even, or any kind of outcrop, then it's normally one of our collaborators who tell me, who uh, raise awareness. And then it's, it's that moment that, that triggers uh, an excavation, if at all. 
it's not very common that we actually go and have an excavation. And I can also tell you that uh, the last two week, uh, the, the, the two week excavation we had in Bacharach, that's really an event. That's really something that takes place every 10 or 20 years for a couple of reasons. First of all, there is very few places like this where you can actually have uh, a fossil Lagerstätte, so a fossil, a fossil concentration as shallow as just one meter underneath the surface. So this is really an exceptional situation that you don't have around every corner. And the second reason, the second very practical reason is that the fossils we, we unearthed now will keep us busy for a couple of years, at least. So if we have the wrong ratio between digging and working, we will end up just accumulating stuff that the, the following generation has to clean up. And we want to keep it fair and feasible. So uh, we go digging whenever there is an opportunity or whenever it is necessary, like in this case, because if 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 we hadn't dug in Bacharage, the site would be covered by a building, so it would be inaccessible. So we didn't really have a choice. But if we do a digging like this, it will really, really create a lot of work for years. In this particular case, were you informed by the people who are doing the construction work there? Or what happened? How did you end up there? It was a very lucky combination of very gentle-minded and uh, attentive people from various places. First of all, it started with one of our longest-lasting uh, collaborators who lived uh, not very far from, from the site and who, who noticed that there were archaeological prospections going on. Uh, archaeological prospections that are prescribed by law before a building, uh, before construction work starts. And the second lucky strike was that the archaeologists uh, involved were, uh, I would say, f friends of us. Uh, fr uh, we, we, uh, we have a very good relation between our departments. And uh, they, they told me that I should come at, a, at the very moment they are opening the, the pits and uh, have a look at the interesting uh, trench. And it was it was indeed the the moment to be there to really get an uh, really get an impression of uh, how the underground will look like, and then the third lucky strike was that the uh, the person in charge of uh, orchestrating the construction project at uh, one of the at the economical ministry was very supportive and very helpful when it came to organizing access uh, authorization and. Um, orchestrating uh, the schedule for this to, in order to make it happen. So it was a very lucky coincidence. A lot of talking to people, a lot of uh, having to deal with people who, are, uh, who like the idea of this excavation, and then it could take place. Okay, and it also means that now, you know, you have enough work for a couple of years, as you said, so all the other construction works can go unnoticed and they can do whatever they want because you won't go there because you don't have time and possibility. I wish it was as simple as that, but we also don't want to miss opportunities that are unique simple, for the simple reason that it is, it, is, it is our mission, our legal mission that we have to keep an eye on the, uh, uh, on the paleontological legacy of, of, uh, of the greater region, of, of the country especially. So uh, if we are unlucky and there is going to be another construction just opposite this, this site, then we have to do that again because otherwise... Uh, well, if it's possible logistically, but uh, yeah, we just hope that uh, all the constructions for the next couple of uh, years will be in geologically uninteresting areas. Meaning the north of Luxembourg. That's not, uh, unfortunately, not as simple as that. No, no. There is very interesting places in the north of Luxembourg, 
but they are more scattered and difficult to, to, to localize and more difficult to predict because of the particular geology of the northern part of the country. Because, you know, maybe some of our listeners don't know that, but in general, when you have excavations, it's more often in the south. Uh, not necessarily, no. Ah, okay, the, so I misunderstood that too. Well, it's 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 uh, easy to to get this impression because the, uh, the the southern part of Luxembourg is of course very rich in spectacular fossils. If we're talking uh, fossils from the dinosaur time, from the Jurassic, if we're talking uh, fossils from big vertebrates like marine reptiles, they are all from the south. So, let's say the headline material comes from the south but scientifically speaking we are also having very very interesting uh, material uh, coming from the northern half of the country and we did have an excavation in november in the area of uh, of uh, heiderscheid even with an excavator with the same conductor by the way but it 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 was not it was not an opportunity to uh, to call the press because it was very difficult to sell the uh, popular interest the scientific interest to 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 a lay audience, so you know, so we we had a lot of uh, we excavated a lot of very exciting and scientifically very very valuable fossils, but selling these from an outreach perspective would have been much more difficult than in Basharaj. You also mentioned that whenever there is a new construction work, there have to be archaeologists on the site, but they also need to cooperate with you. Does it mean that paleontologists are like second in line? Nobody will inform you, and you just. Don't come and, and check yourselves. No, there is no law for you. Paleontological uh, research is covered by the same uh, cultural heritage law as uh, as uh, ar- archaeological uh, heritage. Since recently, that's uh, the, the new, the new, the recast version of the law. But uh, we are not second in line. That's um, uh, I would say so. Uh, but logically, from from the succession of works, we are of course coming after after archaeological research for the simple reason that uh, we go deeper in the rock. But uh, there is definitely no uh, uh, way, weighting of the value or prioritization or anything alike. And then it's also um, our our research is based on the the geological units that you have uh, in the underground. And most modern constructions uh, tend to avoid going too deep underground for economical reasons, whereas archaeological heritage is in the very first uh, layers of the soil. So it's much more often to, to encounter archaeological, archaeologically important stuff, even though you don't go very deep, than paleontologically relevant material. But I would consider it as a very fruitful collaboration between experts. Sounds way better than what I understood in the beginning, because you said well, we had particularly friendly archaeologists, so I needed to ask what was going on there. And also, you mentioned that uh, it involves more digging, but aren't there new technologies nowadays where you can just scan bits of land and see what is inside? Are you using these too, or not in this particular case? Well, as a child, and still nowadays, I, I've always been dreaming uh, about these these goggles, the scanner goggles that will show you where the fossils are. I think in Basharaj, you would have gone crazy with these because they would show every single ammonite in the soil and in, in, in the rock. And I can tell you, we found uh, hundreds, thousands of ammonites. So the underground would be would be bright if looking with, with one of these uh, goggles. Unfortunately, there is no such device. 
you can use scanners to uh, to to scan the underground, but it, there is a very 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 low chance that it will show you the position of fossils because, in order to be de- be detectable, uh, it has to differ in one way or another from the rock, and it only does so if there is an if there is a noticeable physical difference, for example, a difference in density, which is normally not the case with the fossils that we look for. But having said that, I can tell you that some uh, Patagonian dinosaurs were found with a Geiger counter because they were radioactive. The scientists were not looking after dinosaurs, but they were looking after uranium deposits. And vertebrate bones, especially the large ones, they tend to accumulate very heavy uh, elements during fossilization. And uh, as you probably know, uranium is, is a very, very heavy element. So in this case, they accumulated uranium like a sponge and... As a result, they were detectable because because of their radioactivity. But this is an uh, an anecdote, for sure. So there is no real alternative to digging. Who knows? Maybe there will be a new technology soon. Maybe there will be, yes. But we'll still need to have some fun. So you consider this digging fun, then? Oh, yes, it is. It is. If you spend most of the time uh, in, in, in the lab or uh, in your office... Digging is the fun part. It's the physical part. It's the part that makes you, that reconnects you with the rock, that reconnects you with uh, with the outside, uh, with the elements. And it's also the moment of discovery because you're unearthing something. I mean, who has, who has never dreamt of uh, unearthing a treasure? I mean, this is, this is a childhood uh, dream. So uh, yeah, of course, this is fun. Definitely. Absolutely. But the treasures you chose, as you said in the beginning of the podcast, were the brittle stars. So now I have to ask, why brittle stars and not something else? I mean, as you said, uranium and dinosaurs, that just works, you know, it's wonders. You can sell it way more. People get more excited. With brittle stars, I mean, yes, but how do you how do you sell it to people? How, why Why brittle stars? Yes, let's start with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, why brittle stars? It it started during my my early days as a, as a citizen scientist, uh, as a youngster, when I when I was mainly interested in just collecting fossils. And uh, uh, then came the moment when I when I decided to go a bit uh, take take it a bit deeper and uh, write a report, a scientific report about one of the one of the fossils I found and submit it to the youth science contest in Luxembourg. And I wanted to know more about this particular fossil. It was a fossil sea urchin from uh, the south of Luxembourg. Luxembourg. And I wanted to look for for uh, remains of the predators of this uh, sea urchin, namely the sea stars. And you find the sea star elements when you take a, a bag of mud and you sieve it, you, you screen wash it. Then you find the plates that compose the skeleton of a, of a starfish. And I did find a few starfish plates, but uh, the sample was completely filled with weird, weird-looking small fossils that belong to a completely different group, to the brittle stars. And then someone, another collaborator of the museum, gave me some literature on, on, on these plates. And uh, first of all, they intrigued me because of their shapes. And second, I, I was amazed that something that abundant, something s- so easy to, to collect, was so little known. So um, it occurred to me that this, this could be really like uh, like a Pandora box that uh, nobody's ever opened before, and it, it, it turned out true. So uh, they, 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 these fossils, they, they were very, very abundant, very easy to collect, and very informative as well. But understudied. So I, I immediately saw the chance, saw the potential in this, and 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 decided to to, to go to take it uh, to the next level and and focus really focus on this group of animals, knowing of course that it's very difficult to start from. I would not say scratch, but almost scratch. 
And knowing also that I picked a very uncharismatic group of animals, but it's not all about selling to, to the general public. It's mostly about generating knowledge. And in this case, there was a lot of knowledge to generate and a lot of cool stories to develop and a lot of new things to discover that could potentially be relevant for the greater, for the greater picture. And that's exactly why I, I haven't stopped ever since, because the potential of the brittle stars is just enormous. And we also mentioned them in the pub quiz question, but yet we are not going to reveal exactly what you meant with the superpowers. But I wanted to ask, did I get it correctly? It started with the Young Scientist Foundation? Yes, exactly. Okay, because uh, as you may know, uh, recently we interviewed one of the finalists of the of the awards, uh, Skybeck, who talked about cancer and angiogenesis. That's uh, episode number twenty, and we are yeah. also following a lot the young scientists because they are doing really cool things. So That's it's good right, to yeah, know that yeah. your professional life also started with that association. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I, can, I can really say that. It did make a difference back then because it was my my very first attempt at uh, writing a scientific report, working using scientific methods. It really gave me an impression of what it is like to to do research and present and defend your research. So, for those who think about entering the world of science, uh, taking part in in this contest as a young person really makes sense because it's. It's an excellent playground to, uh, to, to explore this world and uh, take it to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of fun as well. And have a lot that. of fun and discover what you like and what you don't like. Okay, so that's Brittle Stars. Once again, I don't want to get into too, de too detailed discussion because then I'm afraid we were going to reveal the answer. But uh, I wanted to ask you also, as far as I understood, you also found some new species of Brittle Stars, haven't you? Yes, that's un that's uh, difficult to avoid if you if you're studying a group that has been neglected for centuries. You all know that uh, every known organism on the planet, whether alive or extinct, has a has a name, for the simple reason that we need to name things in order to work with them. Uh, if we start uh, numbering the animals, it will will get messy very soon. So, uh, giving names to an organism is the very base of uh, dealing with biodiversity. So, um, in order to explore the uh, evolutionary history of brittle stars, I first had to, to start describing the species that were undescribed before. And I, I don't want to brag here, really, but for one of the presentations I gave during the last month, I had to check the number of species that I uh, had the chance to name. And I'm at, at a little more than 100 now. So uh, there is a lot to discover. I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. And describing species can be fun, Above, above everything else is a lot of work because it's a very formalized process. You have to follow uh, some rules uh, set up by an international code, code of nomenclature, that guarantees that these names are scientifically valid. They are scientifically provable and testable hypotheses. Okay, so first you have to actually prove that this is a new species. And then yes, also... Yes. You have to argue. You have to argue why you think this is a new species, and then you have to follow a couple of rules, including the designation of a type specimen. So you 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 have to tie your new name to one designated uh, specimen, one individual, one piece of fossil. Because if you if you uh, don't do that, it will not be testable. You cannot go back to to this 
concept of a, of a scientific name and check if it is really a different species or if it if it's uh, maybe just a variation of an existing species. And then you have to follow uh, a couple of other rules, including the uh, the designation of uh, or the, the definition of uh, the uh, the relevant characters, the definition of the precise origin. You have to illustrate your uh, your new species, and then you have to follow a couple of rules crafting the name of the of the species. And what are the rules for the name? Because obviously all the journalists are going to ask you that, and of course, if people have been following you, they've noticed that you kind of combine uh, science and music. So I have to ask about the rules because then I know that you've done something cool about the naming. That's right. The rules are, are luckily just few and quite relaxed, uh, if you want. You, you, have to, you have to have a, an, a species name in, with a minor and a, and a, and a genus name with a, uh, starting with a, with a capital letter. Other than that, you have to use the Latin alphabet, so no accents, no special signs, no no numbers. The species name has to have at least two two letters, which is obvious. It has to be pronounceable, whatever that means. I think it's more subjective. It must not be uh, offensive, so you must not uh, mock somebody or, I don't know, use a name that is politically incorrect or uh, a personal offense. But other than that... You're free to go for whatever you want. So you can come up with fantasy names that have no meaning at all. You can you can use boring names like, I don't know, use a character of the animal and say, okay, this is a very tall animal, so I'm going to call it Maximus. It's a very small animal, I'm going to call it Minimus. It's, a, uh, I don't know, it's a spiny animal, so it's going to, call, to be called Spinosus. Or it's from Luxembourg, I'm going to call it Luxembourgensis. Yes, that's fair, that's uh, scientific, that's uh, normal, it's often done, but it's not very exciting. And let's be honest, naming things is not the most exciting part of science. Uh, it's a very dull aspect of uh, paleontological and also biological research. Uh, and and the, the species descriptions are very hard to read. I don't read them unless I have to, I have to be honest. But you can add some flavor, you can spice things up when you when you have funny names. And you already anticipated uh, my thing in this in this case is that I, I I name species after my favorite bands for the simple reason that I I can do that and it's fun. And all the one hundred species are named after your favorite bands. Oh, I don't have I don't have a hundred uh, favorite bands. So no, uh, there is a lot of uh, a lot of species that have different names. Some of them have compromised names. If the uh, co-authors were not as keen as me to uh, to name things after musicians, especially from the metal scene, some of the names honor colleagues or friends or relatives. Um, I even named one species after after my dog because uh, he he was very very supportive personality during my PhD. So it is an authentic an authentic move to uh, to honor him. But no, uh, a couple of them, quite a, quite a number of them, bear names of of my favorite favorite bands and musicians. And it turned out that this is not only fun; it's also a very very nice way to to do some science outreach because if you pick bands that are still alive are still active and musicians that are still alive uh, and you contact them there is a chance that they will be uh, excited about them being the name giver of a, of a, of an extinct species even though it's not a dinosaur but then again it's also not a, not a, an intestine parasite so it's not 
a shame to be named uh, to to have a brittle star named after yourself and it's a cool way to have some headlines even as a musician so uh, this is a way of building bridges between science and culture and it uh, occasionally works very very well to the point that we can raise awareness for both worlds show that both worlds can inspire each other have a, have a certain form of cross pollination and make the music fan aware of science and make the scientist aware of some kind some gen- genres of music that he or she would normally not listen to so it's a it's a winning game for both sides so you're saying that heavy metal and metal are not popular among scientists well uh, among scientists certainly and ironically it's especially the the earth scientists who who are very uh, very much listening to rock music and metal music but uh, the science enthusiast, the science, the scientifically interested lay audience is not necessarily the one that you find in the rock hall. That's true, although I've spent a lot of time with IT specialists and that is also quite a, at least in Poland where I'm from, it was pretty popular type of music. There might be an explanation for this. People who listen to uh, heavy music, who listen to metal, they have a very, a very strong, well, it's scientifically proven, they have a very strong sense of ordering things, a very sense of, uh, a very strong sense of trying to understand chaos and trying to, trying to, uh, trying to see the pattern in, in things. So it's not a coincidence, I would say. Okay, another scientific explanation. I was not expecting that about uh, heavy metal music cause I, or rock music because I haven't heard it before, but good to know. I'll, I'll think about it a little bit myself as well, why I like such music too. Um, but it's also actually, from a personal standpoint, great occasion for you, let's say, right? Because you can meet some of your favorite artists. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's that's a very very cool side effect, and it 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 actually worked out uh, in in a few cases. Although I have to say, this is not the primary goal. The, of course, um, the the main goal is is uh, to have fun. The main goal is also to uh, to make uh, a scientific uh, species description more interesting and to uh, to show that there is uh, ways of spicing up things and creating inspiration well beyond the border of what people expect. So simply worded, I would say it's a way of making something quite formalized and dull much more interesting. And when you talk about fun, I wanted to go back to the discussion we had in the very beginning. So the Lost Ocean exhibition and all that, as I said, from my standpoint, as a visitor, it was a lot of fun. It was a really great exhibition. Congratulations on that. But I'm sure that you also except for hard work and being tired right now and all that, you also had a lot of fun with it. So could you tell us what was your favorite part of it? Was it the outreach activities, the different presentations you've had, maybe certain part of the exhibition? What was, what was the best for you? That's a good question. I have to say, I've, I, haven't, I haven't had enough distance to, to really point, point out a, a, an all-time favorite here. Uh, I have a few favorites, I would say. First of all, the... Uh, the time of setting up the exhibition was a magical time, absolutely, for for various reasons. First of all, it was it was an, a very very fruitful and uh, enjoyable collaboration with our graphics team, who did an, a brilliant job. Really, absolutely, it was it was wonderful, and it was very cool to see the exhibition grow bit by bit and take shape. So that's that's definitely one one of the one of my favorites. And then I'm absolutely in love with the plesiosaur model because it turned out just so cool. 
much better than uh, than expected and uh yeah that's definitely one of my favorites and i also very much like that our uh, concept of the uh, lost ocean lab the working the scientific working place within the exhibition that it actually worked out and that's something i i am very fond of and finally i have to say even though it looked as if we had planned this in advance but i'm also happy that the end of the exhibition was an excavation in exactly the same rock that we we displayed so it was it was a uh, a very good way to end to end uh, this this project yeah that's what i was planning to ask you exactly whether it was planned because it just exactly happened at the right moment right so yeah yeah no i i, I wish it i wish it was possible to plan such things in this way but in this case it was just a very lucky coincidence that we of course that we of course used but yeah it was not planned i have to say and for those who haven't seen the exhibition i also know there is a book that you published is it still oh, yes. available oh, yes, in the yes, museum yes. shop I have to say, this is also one of my favorites because it was a lot of work, but uh, the result is making me quite happy. It's 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 a book that uh, is not a catalog of the exhibition, even though it uh, it follows the path of the exhibition in that it shows the way of uh, a grasshopper that uh, ends up as a fossil and on the way from the island, uh, the Jurassic Island, to the bottom of the Jurassic Sea, it encounters all the animals that we showed in the exhibition. And the book can be can be purchased at the museum shop, even now that the exhibition is closed, because it is a book mainly about uh, one specific type of uh, uh, fossil Lagerstätte that we have in uh, in Luxembourg, and also uh, a book about uh, paleontology in general. So uh, for those who are interested, um, the book is available. It will be available uh, in, in the weeks, months, and years to come. And it will also be available online, but I'm not sure if I can already promise this. It's uh, bound to some technical issues to be solved but sooner or later you will also be able to uh to to buy it online i'm definitely interested i only have seen the cover but it already got me intrigued so i probably will go to the museum shop probably without my kids because when we go to the museum shop we always end up buying a lot of stuff because there's a, a lot of nice things for the children as well so that that's that's what a that's what a museum shop should uh, should be like isn't it that's also true yes some treats at the end Yes, Why not? Yes. Okay, coming back to the excavation you mentioned, so the, the one that you kind of finished the Lost Ocean exhibition with, what did you find there? Because that we didn't discuss. You said that you were very excited, it was amazing and whatever. So what were the special findings there? It's a twofold answer I'm, I'm giving now. Uh, first, uh, physically, specimen-wise, uh, I can say that uh, the most exciting things that we found were uh, some uh, some fossil fish specimens that are uh, quite rare and that uh, already now seem to be uh, preserved in, an, in a very exceptional way so that uh, after preparation uh, of the fossil, we will be able to see some amazing anatomical details. Then we found a lot of a lot of fossil squid specimens with uh, the soft parts preserved, including the mantle and uh, even the ink sac. Uh, with well, we have fossilized ink, uh, which is not unknown before, but it's always very exciting to find it. And then one of the squids uh, seemed to have the last meal in the stomach, consisting of a small fish. So this is uh, this is a, a, a fossilized drama, if you want. It's a fossilized uh, crime scene, and it's making it very exciting. Then 
something unexpected, we found a fossil pine cone, which sounds quite uh, quite common now, but uh, it, it is not. It's uh, fossil pine cones from this period from the, the lower Jurassic they are extremely rare you wouldn't you wouldn't normally find them in in the uh, in the marine rocks and thinking about it uh, in order to have a pine cone floating all the way to the to the middle of an ocean sinking to the floor and uh, being preserved as a fossil is something quite exceptional and a pine cone uh, can be used to to identify the plants that we we are dealing with it, it gives so much more information than uh, for example a piece of wood so uh scientifically speaking this is a very exciting discovery and then of course not to not to forget the more uh popular things and the spectacular things uh we also did find a few specimens of marine reptile including one partial skeleton of uh, of a young ichthyosaur so uh when it comes to specimen discoveries this is really something that uh that we can be proud of we have a lot of very exciting discoveries the second part of my answer is we discovered a treasure of information, really. It was a scenario that, uh, that was unique because we could do something like an autopsy of, of the Lagerstätte. We could really uh, dissect it layer by layer. And as a result, we now have a, a much more complete picture of how these fossils can be put into the context, into the geological and the paleobiological context. So we know which animal lived during which period. We know which animal lived together with which other animal. And we were able to, to, to collect samples for all kinds of uh, analysis from the top to the base. And these analyses will include, for example, the study of the climate at the time. So we will know within the next uh, months what the climate was in this area. And, 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 and Bacherage will therefore contribute to a better knowledge of uh, the lower Jurassic climate worldwide. So, yes, uh, we found a lot of fossils, but we also found a true treasure chest of information. And it's very important that you mentioned this because we have this tendency to focus just on the fossils themselves, right? But there is also the study of paleoecology. Am I getting yes, it right? Exactly. So yes. the whole idea of, of climate and, and what we can learn from the past as well. So this is especially important right now that we are noticing all the problems with biodiversity and climate change and all that. We can really learn a lot yes, through yes. That, these kind of uh, information. Absolutely, and that and that's why this uh, uh, excavation situation was so lucky and so important. Because when we go to a construction site, we normally have no control about uh, the extraction of the rocks. So we can look for fossils, of course, and uh, we we regular regularly do so. Like for example, during the construction of the new prison in Sanem, we were able to collect a lot of scientifically important fossils, mostly from from insects including new species, by the way. But the material was, was already excavated. It was already on a pile. So we could not reconstruct the context, the geological context, in as much detail as we could do this time. So we, we had full control over the process of uh, extracting the fossils so we could really document in every detail where the fossil Came, where the fossils came from. And just to give you an example, we, we, we found a lot of uh, fossil wood, driftwood, even one, one, one tree trunk, a big tree trunk. And if you find it on the pile of, uh, of debris after construction, well, you would say, yes, it's fossil wood. It's nice, nice to have. But since we could extract it, since we could unearth them in situ, in place, 
we were able to measure them, measure the, 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 the direction, the orientation of these uh, pieces of driftwood. And they happen to be all oriented uh, along the same axis. So we have a clue about the uh, ocean currents back then. And this is something you don't get if you if you're if you're exposed uh, to the oddities of uh, of uh, construction work. This is only something you can measure if you if you're digging things out yourself, layer by layer. If I were you, I would have uh, difficulty sleeping because it's all the processing, what you've seen and what you need to analyze and what you can actually discover later on, so on and so forth. But I just realized because I assumed, well, I've been to the exhibition, you participate in the Lost Ocean exhibition, but we haven't mentioned, maybe for those people who don't know, why are we talking about an ocean in Luxembourg? Water? Sea? What's what's going on? We didn't say what was here before. Yes, well... um, most of the rocks that you see around when you drive across the country were deposited at, at the bottom of an ocean in one way or another. Even in the north of Luxembourg, uh, the, slate, uh, the slate that you see along the roads, uh, ravines and the, the outcrops, they were formed, they were deposited on the bottom of an ancient ocean and then uh, lifted to the surface. And uh, in case of the slates in the north of the country, they were even part of a, of a mountain chain uh, millions of years ago that nowadays is, of course, eroded down down to to some gentle hills but yes the uh, the part of europe that we nowadays call luxembourg was covered at least in part and in times by an ocean that was mostly shallow so uh all the sandstones that you, or most of the sandstones that you see, especially in Luxembourg City, and all of the rocks that you see in the southern part of the country were part of an ocean. Whereas, uh, especially during the uh, the Lower Jurassic, so during the time that was portrayed in our Lost Ocean exhibition, the northern part of the country was, was part of an island. So it was above the sea level. But yeah, due to te- tectonical movements, due to uh, uh, shifts in the sea level, much of Luxembourg was covered by an ocean at least from 230 million years ago until 268 million years ago. With a short episode between when the sea level was lower and when we had uh, terrestrial deposits in the Triassic. So yeah, it, it's a qu- quite a quite a uh, fluctuating history of. Uh, sea level change, uh, tectonic movements, and varying past environments, if you want. Now you mentioned it was shallow. Can we say more or less what that shallow means? Shallow for an ocean- oceanographer or a geologist is uh, above 100 meters. Okay. It's still still too deep to, to scuba dive. I mean, uh, going deeper than 30 meters is, uh, is just something for experts in, in, in general. But shallow means it was exposed to uh, storm activities. So you can see the traces of storms in these rocks. And shallow also means that uh, the sunlight reached uh, the seafloor all the way through. If you go below 200 meters, you're talking about, uh, you start to talk about the deep sea, and that's normally uh, the depth where the sunlight ends. So here we were all above this depth. It was all very shallow. And it's also one of the reasons why we have this, uh, this particular uh, fossil collection that mostly consists of animals and plants that lived in, in the coastal areas. I could go on forever. Unfortunately, this is, I always say it, I'm, I always promise myself that in the podcast I will not repeat the same sentence, but I just <laughs> love talking to the scientists so much. I would have so many other questions to you, but well, we are kind of slowly running out of time and we also need to solve the pub quiz question. So 
to discuss also about brittle stars a little bit more. So could you repeat the question? Hopefully you still remember it and then give us the answer. The question uh, I, I, I asked in the beginning was, which three superpowers do brittle stars have? Well, to start with, what, what is a brittle star? Uh, because I, I doubt that uh, most people are familiar with this group of animals. They are, they are the, uh, I, I tend to say they are the slender-armed cousins of the starfish. So they, they look like a starfish, but they have very slender, very, uh, very mobile arms, a central body that is uh, disc-shaped. And they can move quite fast. So if you if you happen to find one uh, at low tide on the beach, you will be surprised how quickly they can escape and how, how fast they can wave their arms to, to move forward. And even though they are not very popular and they're not very well known by, by the lay audience, they are everywhere in the ocean. There is not a single corner in the world oceans where there is not a brittle star. Even, even in the deepest parts of the oceans, you would still find them. And because they are echinoderms, they have an internal skeleton, just like we do, uh, except that their skeleton is made out of calcium carbonate, so lime, limestone, if you want. And they have a lot of interesting properties, but three things qualify as superpowers. And one of them is that they can glow in the dark. So they are bioluminescent, many of them at least, meaning that they can, f uh, they can emit flashing lights, especially when they are being attacked by a predator. And uh, they can flash lights in green and blue uh, colors. The second superpower is that they can split into halves and reproduce asexually. So they can do as the bacteria do and just split in the middle. And then you have two new brittle stars that are practically, well, the same as before, except that they are two now. So uh, it's quite a complex group of animals. Uh, they are they are closer to the vertebrates than to than to the mollusks, for example. But still, they have this very very uh, simple way of reproducing themselves, which is quite amazing, if you ask me. And the third superpower is they can see without eyes and without a brain. They can see with some of them can see with their entire body surface. They have light detectors all across the, the surface of the body, but they don't have a brain to process the image. And still they know where to go. They know where to find the crevice uh, from a distance. So I don't know how they do it. Uh, processing visual stimuli without a brain is something that, that completely uh, uh, flabbergasts me. So for me, this is a superpower because I, I just cannot imagine how this works. And I'm sure there is experts who can do, but I'm, I'm This is not my part of my expertise. I just know that they can, and I'm totally fascinated by this. I totally agree. I now understand why you went into bristle stars, although I guess the first time you found them, you didn't know about all the superpowers that no, came no, later. No, that's something I discovered later on, and it, it just corroborated my choice, I have to say. Of course, there is scientific superpowers uh, that I can just briefly summarize. First of all, uh, brittle stars are an excellent uh, model organism if you want to know what was going on on the seafloor during the past uh, million years, uh, because they are at the interface between what falls on the seafloor and the uh, recycling of the nutrients. And another thing that is scientifically quite interesting, and I would even say spectacular, is that the evolutionary history of the, of the brittle stars is well known because we have a molecular insight into the uh, relationships that agrees with the shape of the body of the animals. And this is something that is, it, so, it sounds weird now, I know, but this is something that is normally not the case. The genes 
often tell a different story than the shape of the body of the of the organisms. So if something looks closely related, it could also just mean that uh, it uh, those two animals uh, just lead the same way of life, even though they are genetically very distant. So the genes often tell different relationships than uh, the, the the characters of the skeleton, the characters of the body shape. But in the case of the brittle stars, we succeeded in reconciling these two sources of evidence, which means that we have an, a treasure of data that we can use to explore the evolutionary history of this group and use it as, a, as, a, as an example for uh, for the big picture. For, for and moreover, the, it's one of those species that you know were there in the past and are there now, right? So that's that's right, that's right. So we have a direct a direct link to the past that that goes as far as uh, as as the artificial. So we are we are really going far back in time. That's what what you would call deep time. So uh, yeah, they they are an excellent uh, model organism, uh, at least for scientific studies. For science outreach, they are a bit more tricky, I have to say, but still feasible. No, absolutely. I hope that after today's uh, episode, everybody is going to get interested in that and then they can contact you and discuss more also about the pronounceability of the naming, because I would beg to differ when you when you said that uh, the names are pronounceable, because even the ones that you chose, I don't think I would be able to <laughs> pronounce, because some of them are after quite complicated names and surnames of, of the rock uh, singers or, or stars. That's right. Yes, yes, I agree. And this is also due to the to the pronunciation conflict between Latin and the original pronunciation, for example, of uh, of uh, Anglo-Saxon names or French names. And there is there is indeed a debate going on among among experts as to whether you would stick to the original pronunciation of a, of a surname, for example, or whether you would uh, just Latinize it uh, uh, while speaking. And I personally don't care, to be honest. As long as as people, as scientists, understand each other, and as long as the names are are, are inspiring, I'm not able to pronounce all of them either. And um, yeah, I mean, pronounceability. Who cares? Yeah, absolutely. And I can also see that uh, sometimes maybe it's better not to discover new species because there is a lot of work involved. You can focus on something else instead of just you know trying to find the name and then really argue that it's new and so on and so forth. Yes, it is. It is a time-consuming process, but it is necessary from uh, from time to time because otherwise uh, you you work with entities, you work with biological entities that you cannot name, and that can be a problem because um, you cannot prove that they are entities unless they they have been named before. So it's like tidying up before tackling the the big picture, and this tidying up can be can be very time-consuming. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I, I picked the uh, the music-inspired names because. It's it's making the process a, li- a little more a little more funny, and uh, making the process also sellable in, in, to a certain extent uh, for science outreach uh, before even tackling the, the big picture. So uh, yes, but I have to I have to admit I have a pile of new species that 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 wait to be described, and uh, I doubt that I will be able to describe them all before I, I retire. So yes. Okay, so I'll just let you now go to your tidying up, as you called it, and won't take more of your precious time. But thank you very much for coming over today. It was a real pleasure to talk to you and good luck with all the activities and excavations and species and brittle stars and everything else. Our guest today was uh, Ben Toy. 
Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for the for the for the inspiring questions. And you're not taking up any of my time because this is uh, not only part of my job, but it's the fun part of my job. So thank you very much. Thank you. And this is it for today. I enjoyed myself a lot and I hope you did as well. As usual, please don't forget to subscribe, to follow us, to check out what is going on LinkedIn and Twitter and sometimes Facebook as well. We talk a lot about science in Luxembourg, about our guests, and also check out other episodes if you enjoyed this one. This was Silux, and my name is Hanna Siemaszko.